and you've given us very difficult questions, church. Uh, and we've been doing our best to filter through those and try and find uh, some commonality in the themes that have come through and bring some messages. Bex spoke last week uh, on the big topic of abortion and she just did an amazing job with truth and grace, the heart of God into that whole area. If you didn't hear it, go on to our website, listen to the podcast, it's all up on there. Today's big topic, you'll see it on your notes, uh, is euthanasia. And we have invited a special guest here to be with us today, Dr. Sam Bloor. Uh, Dr. Sam is a medical doctor trained at Otago University. He spent five years working in emergency uh, medicine and uh, also I think psychiatric medicine as well. And uh, he has gone on an incredible journey. He now has a master's in theology. He's studying a doctorate of ministry from Fuller Theological Seminary in the States. Uh, he's an incredible man with a real heart uh, for where faith and culture collide. And so it's uh, our privilege to have him here with us this morning, hitting this big topic for us. So Elam, let's put our hands together. Let's welcome Dr. Sam Paul. I thought that was uh, awesome, the job application crunchy bar, followed by the, uh, I've made it through to the final interviews crunchy bar next week. Yeah. Well, no, what was that? No, so, so the offer's been made, right? It should have been, actually, I've made it through to the final interviews crunchy bar last week. The, I've been made the offer. I've taken the job crunchy bar. The, uh, just first day crunchy bar. The, I've asked for a raise crunchy bar. Man, just quit the job and sell crunchy bars. Okay, I think I'm in charge of my PowerPoint. I've got a photo of the family just to go up first. This is uh, me and my wife, Jules, and, uh, and our three. Uh, she would have loved to have come out and, uh, and been a part of um, this morning, but they've been caught up in uh, the activities of the weekend. She's been actually getting out to Sisters Conference a little bit over the last few days and uh, some other things like that. Um, so this is our tribe. A little, little while ago, actually, the, um, Benjamin there on the right has lost those uh, blonde curls. I took him for his first haircut. Uh, and they were gone. I had to ring mum on the way home and, and say, prepare yourself. Uh, so she got a lot of the tears out of the way before she saw them and they were all gone. Uh, the one in the middle still has curls and still has that steely stare. And she will stare you down. Uh, red hair by both nature, temperament, actuality, the whole bit. Uh, speaking of my wider family, though, I mentioned to my brother-in-law last night, caught up with him, that I was heading out to Elam Botany. And he said, this. Steve Green out there? And I said, yeah, yeah, he is. He's like, man, I've got a bit of a, a bromance with uh, Steve Green. And it was exactly the word that Steve used. My brother-in-law's name is Sam as well. And I said, oh, you know, what happened? He said, well, I used to work, he, my brother-in-law used to work for CAP and do a lot of the church uh, liaison work with, with CAP, Christians Against Poverty. And he'd met Steve up at um, Elam in Whangarei, I think it was when you were there. And Steve was down in Auckland and had just come to see Sam in the, in the CAP offices. He didn't even know his surname. He said, oh, I'm here to see Sam. And they were like, well, we've got a few Sams on staff. He said, oh, the one with the, the, one with the intense eyes. Uh, and that's the, the pot calling the kettle black, you know. This old Steve's pretty intense himself. But, uh, you know, he said, oh, that'll be Sam. That'll be Sam Harrifield, they said. And went and got Sam. And Sam sort of came out and they sort of shook hands. And they said, wait, the reason we managed to identify you, Sam, is he said the one with the intense eyes. And I think, Steve, you said, yeah, the one with the hungry eyes. And uh, Sam, Sam said, oh, that reminds me of a movie. And uh, then Steve goes, yeah, dirty dancing. Shall we do the move? 
And uh, Sam goes, yeah, right, oh, he's as up for anything as Steve is. So they head to opposite ends of the cap office, and no word of a lie, Sam goes charging to Steve, and Steve lifts him up in the Patrick Swayze, Jennifer Grey move. Um, some of you shouldn't have seen that movie, given the title. I'm, I'm disappointed, Elam. How many of you understand that cultural reference? Yeah. Those of you who had no idea what I was talking about, you will remain. The others will be swept away. Um, yeah, so anyway, Sam says hi, and if I wasn't talking on something so serious this morning, uh, Steve and I might have reenacted that for you again. <laughs> Knocking on Heaven's Door uh, is the title of uh, this message, or it's a message this morning, but I actually gave a much longer lecture uh, on this down at Otago's um, Centre for Theology and Public Issues about two years ago, and if you're interested in this sort of thing, if it's a conversation that has kind of gripped you, uh, you can jump on YouTube and just search my name, it's one of the very few YouTube clips with me in it, mercifully, uh, and it's about an hour and a quarter uh, was the, the length of the, the, the version I gave down there. So while I'm trying to give it as a message form this morning, it will come across a little bit like a rapid fire lecture, we're going to cover uh, a lot of ground pretty quickly. You've got a summary of it on the, uh, on the handouts. We're going to keep moving um, pretty quickly, but I would point you towards that if you want to see me uh, stopping for breath a little bit more um, and giving the, the version of it that I gave down there. Theology, popular culture, and New Zealand's ongoing fascination uh, with euthanasia. So that's uh, me giving it there. For some reason, when you, uh, when you search it, it starts playing at six minutes, so you'll have to drag the clicker back. I'm not sure who uploaded that and why it's doing that, but uh, you'll uh, discover that when you get there. So yeah, I... Doing that lecture uh, two years ago was a bit of a return to Dunedin for me. Um, I'd studied down there, I did my medical degree and studied some bioethics. Uh, back in the, I started down there in the early 90s and uh, Michael Laws had a bill before Parliament uh, then. Some of you will remember that. Michael Laws uh, was, the, um, was an MP at the time and he put forward a bill for euthanasia. And it's come back every six, seven, eight years since then actually. Peter Brown's had a bill in. Um, uh, Marion Streets had a bill in, um, someone in between those two did one as well, and now of course David Seymour uh, has had his bill in. Um, after practicing medicine for about five or six years, um, uh, I actually came to faith, or came back to faith after a, a prodigal decade, and began a bit of a long journey, um, sort of just into full-time ministry. I started doing an internship with what was then CLCA, so it's now Life Church uh, in Mount Eden, uh, Paul and Marie Diong and the team there, and I was on staff there for seven years um, in the end, uh, as part of the pastoral care team, uh, and did started my sort of um, training, I guess you could say, in ministry life and theology. I've gone on, as Steve said, to um, to really get gripped by um, by the richness, the depth and richness of the Christian faith particularly as we work to weave that through all of life. So I spend my life now uh, with my own story set aside, actually encouraging people not to leave their jobs and do quote unquote the ministry, but how to integrate their faith fully with where they are. Where, where they are. And, and I do that at the moment uh, with, the, with the Venn Foundation. Um, and this is a, a, a group who work, I, I um, help oversee a program for postgraduate students who come and uh, actually live on site with us for seven months. And we go through almost like a, a crash course in like a, almost a, um, an arts and theology uh, kind of wrestle um, where they 
ask some big questions of their faith, particularly uh, in terms of where the vocation they're feeling called into uh, is. We also run a summer conference, which is a, sort of a taster to that, first week of January. Uh, so if you know someone in their sort of 20s, early 30s that's really grappling with their faith, with what it means uh, to fully integrate that, uh, come up and see me afterwards. I'll be hanging around um, afterwards uh, as well. Uh, and so I've been sort of dragged back into the euthanasia conversation because of the latest round. Lucretia Seal's case blew, up, blew open uh, was it four years ago now, maybe a little longer, uh, and we, we started our latest round uh, of this uh, conversation. I'd have to say uh, that in our programs, we don't just talk about euthanasia. So you're getting my rapid-fire kind of lecture on euthanasia, but I can talk about other things as well. You're just getting me in, in euthanasia mode um, this morning. So I've been dragged somewhat reluctantly back into this conversation. I thought I'd sort of left the medicine behind in the, in the, in the bioethics, but it's been so topical. Uh, I've felt a bit compelled if people have asked me onto panels and other things to, to re-engage with this topic because it's felt a bit more personal this time. Uh, this is a photo of uh, me and Jules on our wedding day uh, almost two, 10 years ago, and that's my dad on the right. He passed away three months after this photo was taken. Uh, after a seven-year battle with lymphoma. And in the end, deteriorated quite quickly, as you can sort of see from this photo. He looks well. He had just finished uh, what they had thought was another successful round of chemotherapy and had gone back into remission. Uh, but things deteriorated within a month of this photo and, uh, and went downhill very quickly. And so taking your own father to the bathroom in the final week of his life is something of a role reversal for a son. Uh, and it was something that was a, a profoundly privileged time, actually. I think we both managed to navigate that difficult couple of weeks with our dignity intact, actually. And I'll have a bit to say about dignity in, the mo in a moment. But this time around, it's gone from being a bit more theoretical of how I studied it in the 90s to I feel like I've got more skin in the game this time around. Uh, again, I had the solemn privilege of leading the funeral of a friend who passed away at 36 from a brain tumor, leaving behind her husband and a two-year-old. In July of that same year, 2016, I had open heart surgery to repair my mitral valve, which after a congenital abnormality that we had no idea about, gave way in my uh, 41st year. Uh, I had to go in and have that repaired the following year. And so my own mortality was thrown up uh, into kind of stark relief in a way that it hadn't been. So in this latest round of euthanasia discussion, it's felt more personal than previous rounds, and it's raised some interesting questions uh, for me about what we value and why we value it. Um, how do the features of our current cultural moment influence our ability to understand, experience, and discuss death well? Because I don't think we really know how to do that. Should my own understanding be informed at all by my Christian faith? And if it is informed by my Christian faith, does that mean I'm disqualified for say, from saying anything in public, as some journalists will want to point out? <laughs> well, you're a Christian, you've got a Christian point of view, we park you guys over there. And you will have heard that after the submissions came out. Oh, sure, there were four times as many uh, against euthanasia as for euthanasia, but most of those were religious, will be the sort of the way that they're swept aside. So what I want to do this morning is actually go through, you'll see this on the, on the small handout you've got, is the three main arguments for euthanasia, and I want to say something sort of in response to them. 
There's been something of an evolution uh, through these. When I was looking at this first in the 90s, uh, kind of pain and suffering was, was the, the main argument put forward. Um, as we've become better at treating pain, and pain is less of a, an argument to actually realistically put forward, I'm not saying we can do it in absolutely every case, but it's very rare now for a, uh, a talented uh, palliative care team to not be able to get on top of pain. That's very rare. And so the language moved to suffering. Well, it's not pain, but I'm, I'm suffering in other ways. There's an emotional or an existential suffering. The argument moved to dignity. Well, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not I'm suffering. This is a, this is me, a loss of dignity for me. Uh, we, we, we shouldn't be undignified. I can remember one of the quips being used, putting grandma out of our misery. You know, I don't like looking at grandma like this. It's undignified. And so these kind of arguments of dignity. Uh, in fact, um, you'll remember Marion Street's bill was called the Death with Dignity Bill. But it's now moved uh, to just out-and-out out autonomy. It's a choice. So D David Seymour's bill is called the End-of-Life Choice Bill. Uh, it doesn't, it's none of your business whether I'm suffering or whether I'm losing dignity. It's my choice. And so I want to respond to these, and I'm going to do that uh, in reverse order, so I'm going to talk a bit about autonomy and choice, some, uh, something on dignity and something on suffering. I'm going to make a couple of theological reflections, so two under the theological sort of side and then two other reflections, um, and that's somewhat of an arbitrary distinction. I think everything's theological at the end of the day, uh, but there are, the other ones will be languaged with perhaps a little less Christianese, if you like. There'll be arguments that you can maybe introduce around the water cooler at work without getting outed. Uh, as a Christian, or without having someone write it off as just being a sort of a, a Christian argument. Um, I'm not going to quote a lot of scripture with my theological arguments. We don't have uh, sort of time for me to show you my working, but they uh, are the result of a long wrestle with some of the things that I, I believe are, are scripturally um, consistent, uh, and, and particularly uh, given the, the tradition of the church. So the more astute of you will have said two times two times three equals 12. That's a lot of points to get through. And I'm now down to 22 minutes, so I'm going to go like the clappers, all right, so that we get through uh, some of these. So the first thing I want to say uh, around the theological of autonomy and choice um, is that we need to understand the nature and con consequences of our creatureliness. We're the, central to the Christian faith, really, is God first and then everything else after God. But we're, we're, we're creatures, and that puts limits on our autonomy. Um, the notion uh, that you would have a right to die would be anathema to most of church history. There's no right to die. Uh, that's a, almost a contradiction in terms. I think we see in Scripture as well this notion of a power that's too great for us to contain, actually, was never meant to be ours to, to have. You see it in the garden, are grasping after something that when you've got it, you can't contain the power of it. I think Tolkien's trying to capture this with Lord of the Rings, you know. You want this thing so badly, and when you've got it, it spills out beyond the boundaries you thought you could delimit it with. I think Scripture gives us uh, a pretty radical understanding of the nature and the consequences of community. Uh, our individuality has limits. Uh, we actually are in each other's lives or supposed to be, and they're supposed to be in ours. How I die will affect you. How you die will affect me. Uh, there's no such thing as the independent person uh, in Scripture. 
Some other reflections. Again, there's a, there is a, a sort of a secular understanding of this, if you like. In 1623, uh, the poet John Donne wrote that no man is an island. And picking up on that, UK journalist Douglas Murray said, we don't live on islands of absolute solitude. What you choose to do with your body may very well have an effect on what someone else does with theirs. And we place limits on our autonomy to protect ourselves and others. If you listen to some of the disabled voices on this issue, uh, they'll tell you that they've needed the protection of the law to get them through some really dark seasons of their life. That actually if the law had changed, some of them say, I wouldn't be here because I would have taken the opportunity and I needed to know there was the backstop of the law that no matter what, even if I pleaded with friends and family and my doctors, they couldn't do what I wanted them to do in that time. And now, out the other side of it, I'm grateful it was there. A couple of years ago, the uh, MP Simon O'Connor got into trouble, it was just before the last election, as I recall, got into trouble for drawing some parallels as well uh, between uh, euthanasia and suicide, uh, which seems to me a bit radical. You know, it's not that much of a leap to talk about suicide and assisted suicide. I mean, there are some links there, you know. <laughs> Simon O'Connor was pointing to those links, and he understood the differences as well. And I think people's outrage was a bit like, that's simplistic to call it the same. But the point that got missed in all of the outrage was that it didn't matter whether I can see the difference between euthanasia and other forms of suicide, or whether you can see the difference, or Simon O'Connor can see the difference. What matters is whether a depressed and isolated 14-year-old can tell the difference that once you've legitimated suicide as a solution to any problem, you then lose control of who decides it's gonna then be a solution for them. Like that just keeps emanating out. You get ripples uh, from that kind of a decision. Um, I'm gonna skip the, uh, the next point there just to get on to the, uh, the second one, number two. Autonomy is a fluid concept. Uh, it's open to coercion. Uh, ask people who are getting uh, older uh, and they'll tell you that there's a certain vulnerability that comes with that. My mum has sensed that after the loss of dad, and she's only in her mid-60s, but going, actually, there's a vulnerability starting to creep up on me that I didn't feel before. Uh, people who are depressed or grieving. Some of the most vocal calls for euthanasia are actually coming from people whose autonomy is still remarkably intact and secure and unchanging. And they haven't yet felt some of these vulnerabilities sort of come creeping in uh, around the end. Uh, around the edges. I want to read you quite a long quote from uh, a guy called William Toffler, who's a professor of family medicine in Oregon, where they've had a law change now for a number of years. He wrote a Wall Street Journal article in 2015, and he titled it, A, Doctor a Doctor-Assisted Disaster for Medicine. Since the voters of Oregon narrowly legalized physician-assisted suicide 20 years ago, there's been a profound shift in attitude toward medical care new fear and secrecy and a fixation on death. Well over 850 people have taken their lives by ingesting massive overdoses of barbiturates prescribed under the law. Proponents claim the system is working well with no problems. This is not true. As a professor of family medicine at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, as well as a licensed physician for 35 years, I've seen firsthand how the law has changed the relationship between doctors and patients, some of whom now fear they're being steered towards assisted suicide. In one case, a patient with bladder cancer contacted me. She was concerned that an oncologist treating her might be one of the death doctors, and she questioned his motives. This was particularly worrying to her after she obtained a second opinion from another oncologist who was more positive about her prognosis and treatment options. And here's, here's the point he's making. Whichever of the consultants was correct, such fears just weren't an issue before. You didn't have to second guess your doctors before. You didn't have to be sitting at home 
uh, vulnerable. We don't know any other details about this lady. She's elderly. She's just had a diagnosis that most of us would find, leave us reeling. And she's now got the added pressure of trying to work out, hmm, I wonder which camp the doctor I went to first is in. He's saying, make sure you're aware that that's what you're introducing into every doctor-patient relationship if you change the law. The second thing I think we need to talk a bit about is the complexity and the potential dysfunction of families. Uh, And I've seen this play out in lots of ways. Uh, In medicine, when I worked uh, in emergency medicine and and pediatrics and psychiatry, uh, I've seen it in church and ministry life. Uh, I hosted a talkback radio program on News Talk ZB for five years on a Sunday night, and talkback's a different beast entirely. Uh, You get to talk to some pretty interesting sausages on uh, talkback radio. And it's convinced me that most of us grossly underestimate the amount of family dysfunction out there. Uh, Most, again, of the high-profile cases that are calling for euthanasia have enjoyed really loving and stable relationships and continue to support networks. But if you introduce any number, uh, any one of a number of variables uh, into that mix, things can get incredibly complex very quickly. Cultural differences, financial complexity, divorce and remarriage, sibling rivalries, past history of emotional, physical or sexual abuse. And that's just, you've got an absolute powder keg there when you introduce a law change around death and dying and conflict of interest and and family kind of infighting uh, amongst themselves or maybe with a a terrible kind of experience at the hands of the very person whose life hangs in the balance. Even previously close and supportive families really get knocked by a terminal diagnosis. And then imagine that happening in a family where you've already got quite a bit of dysfunction. So on to dignity, and I'm going to really be sort of racing through these. I think, you know, Christianity gives us, again, uh, some, some cues on dignity. We don't make up or manufacture our concept of dignity, nor the dignity itself. Dignity is bestowed. We get this uh, phrasing of Imago Dei, the image of God out of Genesis 1. Uh, where we have dignity because God says we do, and we are able to bestow dignity on each other, even in really undignified circumstances. Uh, Dignity isn't a product of the person having to cobble it together. It can be bestowed on my dad, even as I'm taking him to the toilet. Secondly, I think uh, Christianity really subverts our understanding of just exactly who's got dignity and who doesn't. Oh, she was very dignified, is often how we use that sort of word. The gospel sort of inverts who might really matter and who doesn't. And we see particular focus and attention being given to the least of these, the last, the weak, the poor, the widow, and the orphan. So I think that is worth bearing in mind as we come to conversations uh, around dignity. Moving on to some other reflections. Uh, First point I want to make here is the time that it takes to adjust Uh, to a perceived loss of dignity. So when it does happen, I sat there on Ward 42, having just woken up from my surgery, actually started in ICU, shaven from head to toe, well, not quite my head, but from the neck down, I was completely shaven. Uh, I was uh, bloated from all the fluids that had gone into me. Uh, I had a pipe in and out of every orifice. I'm not gonna take this any further than PG for the purposes of this talk. But by the end of the week, I was remarkably comfortable with all that. It was just like, yeah, whatever, change this. 
you know, take this out, put this in, you know, letting it all hang out a little bit, you know. And that was just, that was just my situation, which I knew had an end to it. But other, other kind of changes do say, take some time to adjust to. Um, one of the uh, things that uh, Alora Finlay, who's a palliative care specialist from the UK, said when she was last out, is that this is the role of the doctor, is to actually close the gap between expectation and health. And sometimes that gap has been caused by a slowly deteriorating process. Sometimes you have a catastrophic change in health, and you turn up to the doctor, and the doctor's job is to help to try and bring those two things closer together. That's one of their roles. Sometimes you do that, and the hope is to go back to full health, Sometimes you do that and you're having to meet in the middle. Sam, you're 45 now. Um, that knee is never going to feel quite the same way. You're just going to have to get used to deteriorating joints. Uh, that's what happens in your mid-40s. Um, other times you're having to do that as the health itself continues to deteriorate, as in the case of terminal illness. You know, The, the health is never going to start an upwards trajectory, but you're trying to close that gap. And she said, while we continue to view our health as being this kind of pie where little bits of it get chipped away, it, it does build the sense of like, well, now I've turned 40 and now this has happened to me and now I've had a heart valve repair and look at the small amount that's left uh, of my pie. Or a catastrophic uh, tetraplegia, which she described in the life of a, of a 21-year-old rugby player that she knew, who asked to be euthanized for all of the three or six months, I forget the story now, that he was under her, uh, her immediate care before he moved off to a longer-term rehabilitation facility. Every single day, he asked if he could be killed. She said, what we miss is that it takes a really long time to actually build a new life around the health that we've been left with. And she actually went to visit that guy about 18 months later in his home, and she was dreading the visit. She turned up there, someone answered the door, she kind of came through, she met him in the hallway, he had one of those, you know, full-on wheelchairs, able to move it with the small amount of movement that he had. They went through into his lounge, and she noticed there were just bookcases everywhere in his, uh, in his lounge. She's going like, he said, oh, I've discovered books. She's like, I can, I can see that. He went on to explain that as a, as a sporty kid, he'd been in rep teams for rugby and every other sport since he was about 11, and um, reading and all of that had very much taken a back seat, and he'd been forced in looking for other things to do to find stuff, and had discovered reading and had just taken off and was currently in a master's program studying. Now, I don't want to downplay tetraplegia or offer a cute story about, just pick up a book, mate. But she says, man, if we'd listened to his narrative for the three months, six months, nine months, she said it, it, was, it took him a year to come out of the depression and the change that was forced upon him in that, in that sort of a process. And she says it's way longer than these cooling off periods that are built into the law, into the proposed law changes. It takes way longer than that. Second thing I just want to say on this is it's not an individual concept. Uh, when we call a condition undignified, it does send a message to others with that condition. I've got a friend that works for Villa Maria Winery, and uh, I, I, I confess here, I'm not sure how many wine drinkers we've got in the house versus teetotalers, I might get booed off the stage, but I'm a, I'm a fan of Chardonnay, I love an oaky Chardonnay, and he would invite me out to Villa Maria and, uh, for some of their wine sales where they'd sell off the end-of-line stock. 
and uh, I'd buy them by the caseload and take them home and sell them. And oh, it was, yeah, it's wonderful. Don't give me, I'll go off on a complete tangent. We'll be, we have a whole, whole nother uh, You Didn't Ask For It series to, uh, to continue with. But the um, thing is, I found that they were doing one of their single seller Chardonnays at Countdown about five years ago. They specialed them down to 13 bucks a bottle. And I bought, I think it was, I went in twice because they were doing it two cases at a time. So I went to two different countdowns and bought four cases of it. And I, um, next time I saw David, like, you know, caught him somewhere, I said, mate, I got the blah, blah, I forget the year it was now, for 13 bucks a bottle. And Dave just exploded. And not in a good way. And I was a bit taken aback. I thought my friend would be stoked that I was getting this wine for, you know, and that I was drinking it by the caseload. And he, he just said, mate, that is not a $13 bottle of wine. That's like a $30 bottle of wine. And we wholesale it to Countdown, but then they cut the price in half just to get you in the store and run it at a loss. And he said, here's the thing, you'll never pay full price for that bottle of wine again because you've drunk it for 13 bucks. You think that's what a $13 bottle of wine tastes like? And I haven't paid full price for it ever again. I've gone hunting for the specials. I don't want to be cute about a wine story, but once New Zealand sees the first person euthanized with multiple sclerosis or motor neuron disease, you'll never look at those conditions the same way again. It will have forever altered the way you view those conditions. And this is the point that the disabled community is making. I asked the team just to keep the volume down on this. We're, we're, we're running low on time, and I, I don't want to um, uh, take a couple of minutes to play this. But this is Liz Carr. She's a comedian from the UK. And uh, she talks about this and says, the very conditions you're fearing, we're living with them every day. And it really lowers the value of my life to have you say that those are the things that you would want to die with. Society's understanding of dignity changes over time, and Liz Carr is well aware of this. So the law doesn't just change for all of us. Over time, the law changes us. So what starts off as legislation for a few cases becomes normalization and then becomes expectation. So in the UK, uh, uh, sorry, this is uh, in the Netherlands, uh, there's a guy by the name of Gerbert van Leunen. He was the uh, deputy editor for a daily Amsterdam newspaper. In 1994, his partner, Nick, went into hospital for the removal of a small benign brain tumour, but there were complications. Uh, they were left in a, um, in a very, you know, um, very disabled by uh, the procedure, severe disability. But Gerbert rearranged his life uh, to care for Neek at home, uh, which he managed to do for four years uh, before moving to a care facility, uh, and Neek survived another six years uh, with reasonable quality of life. But what surprised and shocked uh, Gerbert was the change in attitude and the, some of the things that were said to them during that process. It would have been better if Nick had died, one of them said at the outset. Uh, another one told them when they expressed frustration, you chose to go on living so you've got no right to complain. In other words, the fork in the road came six years ago when you chose to go on living. You've forfeited the right to have a bad hair day now. You don't get to complain. He was amazed with the change of attitudes just in that decade. He wrote a book in 2015 called Do You Call This a Life? Blurred Boundaries in the Netherlands' Right to Die Laws. Um, he said, once an average Dutchman who thought of euthanasia as one of the crown jewels of our liberal country 
I, I became someone who was shocked by the harsh tone used by the Dutch when they talked about handicapped life. He cared so much about this that he actually flew out to New Zealand and made a submission to our subcommittee uh, on this in the latest round. We started with cases of people suffering from physical diseases. Now we're talking about terminating the life of babies with spina bifida. Uh, today we're talking about suicide for elderly people who are not ill but who are weary of life. In the past it was easy. There was this obvious limit, thou shalt not kill. Then we broke that rule. We're still looking for the new limit. We don't know how far we should go. This isn't a person talking out of a place of Christianity or, or faith. This is just someone saying, this is, the, this is what we're seeing. So I want to close on suffering, and I'm going to have to just skip through a few of my longer quotes here, um, but you'll get the gist of it uh, on your handouts there. I want to start by saying that I find this the most compelling of the arguments, you know. If you're not moved by some of the very difficult cases that you'll hear in this subject on, on suffering, then you should be. Uh, and I want to flip this around and give uh, a couple of the other reflections before uh, some of the maybe more theological ones. The first thing to say on this, though, is that there have been huge advances in palliative care, and many doctors don't even know about them. I didn't know about them uh, until being uh, there at the bedside with Dad, that the palliative care was amazing compared to even what my understanding of it, training you know, 10, 15 years earlier. And it's even better now when I go on panels and have... You know, people who are in palliative care now, it's improved even in the sort of 10 years since Dad died. Um, many people are unaware of the rights that are already available to them as well. Like the right to refuse some medical treatments uh, is already there. But firstly, people I don't think fully understand their rights. Secondly, I don't think you can actually discharge those rights when you're just thrust into a hospital setting uh, at a very vulnerable time of life. And so uh, I think that's something that, that, that we can do more education around. Secondly, suffering is subjective by definition. And this is why safeguards aren't working. Uh, if you say I'm not suffering, but I say I am, then by definition I'm right. And so one of the problems with this is that people are wanting to opt in to euthanasia. Why should the forms of suffering that have been included in the law be considered worse than my form of suffering, which isn't? And so this is evolving, and no one can kind of stem the tide. This is just keeping on growing. There are court cases in Canada who've only had this law change for three or four years. Um, it just gets broader and broader. Uh, human rights, by definition, want to universalize. That's what a human right does. And so when you enshrine a right to be able to die because of X, Y, Z, well, it's not too long before X, Y, Z comes back to all the other letters of the alphabet. So uh, I won't go over these, but in Belgium, you've now got cases where it's miles away from what anyone had first envisaged the law change uh, coming into uh, existence for. And this has been the sort of the tracking uh, of the number of cases in Belgium. Um, I won't read this long quote as well, but the simil very similar in the Netherlands where they've seen this pattern tracking upwards as people opt in. And that guy there, Theo Bohr, was on the ethics committee for the Netherlands that fought to have this. And he's now saying, we've made a huge mistake, but we can't get the genie back in the bottle. So he's basically saying, don't do it. And I, I pay attention when you get an academic saying, we got that wrong. You don't hear academics say that very often. Finally, uh, theologically, I, I want to be very sympathetic to the argument of suffering. Uh, I think uh, Christians have a, um, a bit of a love-hate relationship with suffering. <laughs> you know, we, we, we know it's an inevitable, inevitable part of life, but 
We're not immune to it any more than anyone else, and nor should we be glib about it. Um, and we've said some unwise things. I've said some unwise things uh, around suffering. Uh, Gilbert Melander uh, says, we shouldn't, of course, pretend that suffering in itself is a good thing, nor should we put forward claims about the benefits that others can reap from their suffering. That can sound tinny. Uh, Job's friends got in trouble sometimes when they opened their mouths. They should have just sat with him in his suffering and waited for the Lord's presence to come rather than profess to explain what's going on here. Uh, So that should give us caution. We should be moved by these extremely uh, difficult cases. Secondly, and the challenge I want to leave us with this morning is, um, are we prepared to actually put our money uh, and our time uh, and our emotions where our mouth is and really care for the dying? in ways that are time-consuming, in ways that are emotionally depleting. Um, Paul Ramsey talks about caring for the dying, but only caring for the dying. So we should care. We shouldn't just you know, look at quick ways to shortcut this, but nor should we continue to hide behind technology and just throw another procedure at a person. Both of those, he says, are forms of abandonment. Um, since I've been given this, this talk for many years, I've had to confess that I have two rest homes within four kilometers of my house. And I've thought a number of times as I've driven past them, because I've heard that often a way to volunteer is actually to go along and to read to people in rest homes. Many of them are losing their sight, and one of the, their previous joys of being able to read a book they've lost, and uh, they love to have people read to them. And uh, I like reading and books and literature, and I love the sound of my own voice, so that's just a win-win for me to to go and do that. But the thing is, I haven't. And I've driven past these two places multiple times every week, and I haven't yet sort of found the time to actually go and, and to, in a small way, alleviate part of someone's suffering. Now, I'm not saying that there's someone in the Hillsborough Rest Home that's wanting euthanasia because Sam Bloor's not reading them a bedtime story, but... I am putting myself front and center and saying, I actually haven't really counted what some of the cost of this might look like. Um, In the abortion conversation, I don't want to jump back to last week, but sometimes pro-life people are accused of being pro-birth, not pro-life. You want the birth to happen, but are you going to be there for the next 18 years? Are you going to walk the long journeys with people who are doing this sort of thing? That care is going to cost us. And one of, in my, in my more kind of pessimistic moments, I, I do think that inevitably, if not this round, then next round, we will see a law change. But I, I think to myself, wouldn't it be awesome if the law changed, but the church in New Zealand had so mobilized that very few people took it up, took up the opportunity, because this stuff was happening. There was, there was care going on. There were people prepared to volunteer into areas and to do the hard work of working and walking with people through all of this. Walking with them as they go through this slow journey of rebuilding a life around what's left of their health and that may be health that's continuing to deteriorate. I've gone a few minutes over again, Steve. I apologise for that. Can I just pray for us as we draw this to a close. 
Father, we, we first of all want to thank you that you are the source of life. We sang this morning about uh, our ultimate hope being in you and the fact that even death has been conquered. But God, actually that, uh, that realisation and understanding, far from making us complacent about our life here, should actually make us some of the most committed to walking with each other through the entirety of that life, whatever it brings. And so I pray that we would be people who do that, God. I pray for people in the room where this has not been theoretical, this has struck close to home. There have been illnesses, there have been terminal illnesses, there have been deaths that have been difficult to be a part of. There will be people here who have sensed some of that despair and depression in in other ways and in other forms. Father, I pray that you would be close to us, that you would comfort us, that you would allow this community to be a people who can be your hands, feet and heart to each other and to walk through life, whatever it brings. We thank you for your goodness, God. We pray for this country. We pray for our leaders as they make decisions over this and other things that you would be guiding our country. You would be defending it as our national anthem says. Amen. Thanks, mate. Amen. Church, we thank Sam. Great work. I'd actually love to uh, pray one more prayer. Can I invite everyone just to take a moment, just to close your eyes one more time, just to bow your heads and take what you